Thank you, Kent and Barbara, for our music tonight. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. I'm inviting you tonight to go to the book of Hosea. If you've not been there before, <laughs> I can tell you how to get there. Of course, we have 12 minor prophets. We call them minor prophets just because of the length, and they're put together uh, in the back of your Old Testament. So it's the first one. The book of Daniel, uh, you can sometimes find easily, and the very next book is Hosea. My plan is to go through this book. There are 14 chapters in this book. The only other minor prophet that has 14 chapters is the book of Zechariah. Most of them have three, maybe four chapters. So it's a long book, and these are long chapters. So uh, I'm, I'm going to take it a chapter at a time, but I'm going to be very selective in these chapters which uh, things we're going to look at. So I think we'll get a good picture of this book and look at some of the details that it has. It's full of prophetic things about the future. It's also full of historical things that happened in these days. Hosea is a common name in the Bible. As a matter of fact, there, uh, is a, there was a king of Israel named Hoshea, and Hoshea and Hosea are the same name. As a matter of fact, it's the name Joshua, and in the New Testament, it's the name Jesus. And the name means salvation. So Yeshua, as they would say it, uh, can be spelled a number of different ways. And uh, sometimes even in translation, there's a couple places in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, where there's a question of whether it means Joshua, as in the Old Testament, or Jesus. And different translations will give you different names there. So this is the name. Hosea means, uh, means salvation. And again, uh, one of the minor prophets, it's an early book. It takes us back to the 700s B.C. And that's important because Hosea is from the north. If you remember, Israel was divided into two parts, two countries actually, Judah in the south, just two of the tribes, and then the ten northern tribes up north. Well, the northern tribes lasted until 722 B.C., and then they are taken captive by the Assyrians, and they never came back. And so if Hosea is speaking in the 700s B.C., this, this captivity is impending, and he's preaching to them about God's judgment that will soon come on them. The southern tribes didn't go into captivity until Babylon uh, came along, and those were in the 600s and 500s B.C. So we look at a book like this, and, and I was asking myself these questions. Uh, why this book? Why should we study Hosea? Well, the first reason is it's part of the Bible. It's a Bible book. God inspired it. God put it in here for a reason. Notice in, the, in verse 1 of chapter 1, it starts off by saying what? The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. We understand that these things are God's word, and therefore all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, right? And this book, of course, is, to is also. And uh, by the way, that phrase, the word of the Lord, is in uh, nine out of the 12 minor prophets as they either begin their book or begin talking about what the word of the Lord is. All 12 of these 
uh, are uh, God's Word. In the Hebrew Bible, they were considered one book, the Twelve, and they, they were put together in one book. That's why their book has uh, 22 Old Testament books and ours has 39 because a lot of things were combined. Well, also, this is real history. It's real history and real prophecy that we read about in these books. These things happened. These people really lived. This was part of Israel's history, and so we understand that. It's a warning book. It's a warning not only to the, to the nation of Israel, which they did not heed, and God did bring judgment on them, and it's a warning to those who have treated Israel either right or wrongly, which is a message to us even in our day also. It's also a book of redeeming grace, because if you think of Hosea, one of the things, of course, that we will see right away in chapter 1 is that he marries, he's commanded to marry a wife, and God knows that she will be unfaithful to him. And that is a picture, the reason God commands him to do this is, it's a picture of how God's own people, Israel, were unfaithful to him. And so we find that Hosea uh, is, is a very uh, loving man. As a matter of fact, someone calls him the, the John of the Old Testament. John, you know, in the New Testament was, was the beloved disciple and the one that God loved and, or Jesus loved. And, and he writes a lot about the love of God. Uh, we see this in Hosea as his love for his wife and his bringing her back and redeeming her. That's what God did to Israel. That's what God does to us. We also see that, that captivity. Look again at verse 1 and notice the history that is here. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of, and he begins to list kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were kings of Judah. Now, he's preaching to Israel, not to Judah, but here's the, here's the thing. Uzziah began his reign in 790 B.C., so sometime during his reign, Hosea begins. Hezekiah ended his reign in 686, a hundred years later. Sometime during Hezekiah's reign is when this ended. And Jeroboam II, who's listed there, who was a king of Israel, reigned from 793 to 753. So Hosea evidently had a ministry that lasted at least three quarters of a century, uh, th three quarters of this time uh, uh, through these hundred years. So he lasted a long time. He, he had a long uh, ministry. Now, we also learn about his wife, Gomer, here, who I said will be unfaithful to him, and God knew this, and yet God planned this so that this book would show uh, how his own people had been unfaithful to him. Someone remarked that in this book of 14 chapters, idolatry is mentioned or referred to 150 times in one form or another. Imagine how unfaithful God's people are to him when one of the Ten Commandments is, after all, you'll not have any idols before me, and here his own people uh, are that much into it. And judgment is coming, and judgment will come in 722 B.C. as they are taken captive and, and scattered. So if he's the, if he's the John 
of the Old Testament, that is the loving uh, disciple John. He's also, by the way, a type of Jesus, I think, because he has the same name as Jesus. Jesus loved the unlovely, didn't he? Jesus is one who, who loved us, and he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, he didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And we see this in our Lord Jesus Christ and the redemption that he has for us, that he took us out of the miry pit, set our feet on a solid rock. And that's what God is going to do here uh, in the life of Hosea. So for tonight's message, we will just go through this first chapter. It's not that long, but it is kind of interesting because it talks about this man, his wife, and their children, which is kind of interesting. So we've read verse 1. So let me begin with verse 2. And you have an outline, by the way, on your bulletin if, if you have that in your hand to, to look at or on the screen if you're looking at it there. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, that's verse 2, go take yourself a wife of holler, uh, harlotry excuse me, and children of harlotry, and the land has, uh, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. Interesting, isn't it, that, that this is what he is commanded to do. Now, it's, it's been interesting, and, and I, I, you know, I read a half a dozen or, or so commentaries on, on something like this when I'm, when I'm speaking on it, and it's interesting that there's a lot of discussion about whether when he was commanded to marry Gomer, was she already a harlot? Was she already in that business, so to speak? Or was she rather uh, a good woman without that? who would become a harlot during their marriage or unfaithful to him. There are reasons both ways, but I kind of take it the second way, and that is that she was, she was uh, a good girl, a good woman, uh, and he married her and was commanded to, and then she was unfaithful to him during their marriage. Now, you notice in, in that verse 2, go take yourself a wife of harlotry. So some people say, let's just take it exactly as it reads. That's what she was into when he married. That, that's a possibility. Uh, Charles Feinberg, who was Jewish himself and understood that language a lot, uh, he pointed out that the word of means prone to. God knew that she was prone to this when he commanded uh, Hosea to marry her. And other reasons are given, just the fact that uh, why would God command that, something that would be unscriptural to do to one of his prophets and so forth. So it doesn't really matter in the, in the gist of the story because the fact is she's unfaithful while they're married, and uh, he's going to have to deal with that and eventually take her back. So I kind of take it that way that she, God knew that she was prone to this and uh, as a matter of fact, God knows everything, past, present, and future, so God knew what was going to happen, and uh, he instructs Hosea to do this. So notice that in that same uh, middle of verse 2, for, why? Why do this? For the land has committed great harlotry. Uh, again, idolatry. They have gone after other gods. Now, you just have to 
you know, you have to read your Old Testament to find out how common this was. You remember the days of the judges, don't you, when, when uh, God would, would bless them and they would go off into worshiping idols and different gods like Baal and Ashtoreth and Milcom and those kind of gods. And then God would bring uh, punishment on them by another nation coming in. And then they'd cry out to God and God would save them with one of the judges. And after God saved them, what did they do? Turned right around and went back into the idolatry again. They cried out to God. You know, God brings judgment. They cry out to God. God delivers them. And that cycle just happens over and over again, just in the book of Judges. And when you read Kings and Chronicles, uh, you just find this same pattern. And, and you understand that this is, this is the land that Joshua and the Israelites came in and conquered. And God said, when you do, get rid of these idols. Get rid of these things in this land, or they will plague you to the end. And the problem was they never did get totally rid of them. And instead, throughout their history, they get into this idolatry. So I'm going to do a thing, God says. I'm going to command my prophet to take a wife who's going to be like you are to me. And she's going to be unfaithful to him like you are to me. And I'm going to bring judgment on that, and I'm going to show you what I think about that. And then we'll talk about you and me, he says, to Israel. So that's kind of why this is done. Remember that God made a covenant with Israel, don't you? I want to say this a couple different times. The Abrahamic covenant first, way back to the days of Abraham in two, about 2000 B.C., so long before this, God made a, an unconditional covenant. Marriage is pictured as a covenant. That's God's word for marriage. And God made a covenant with Israel, unconditional, like we should make in our marriages too, unconditional covenant. And yet they kept breaking that covenant and breaking that covenant. And God takes that seriously. Now, you have in your notes there the name of, of three children, three uh, kids that these two people had, that, that is Hosea and, and, uh, and his wife. So notice, uh, you, maybe you have a, a, a book with headings in it or whatever, but you have these divisions there. So I put them here for you. Their firstborn is named Jezreel. And so notice in verse 3, so he went and took Gomer. That's a woman's name, by the way, for those of you who watched Andy Griffith. That's, that's a woman's name. The daughter of Diblame. And she conceived and bare him a son. So the first child is a boy. The second one will be a daughter. And the third one will be another boy. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that, that uh, these kids become signs. And I read this cross-reference in Isaiah 8.18 where Isaiah had children and to Isaiah, God said in 8.18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel, for the Lord of hosts dwells in Zion. And so it was kind of common for a, a prophet's children to be named for these things and to be signs for God, what God is doing in their life anyway. So it's going to be true in Hosea's night. Call his name Jezreel. Call his name Jezreel. For, again, why? For in a little while I will avenge 
the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. Well, a little bit of Old, Old Testament history here I'll explain in just a minute. And I will bring to an end <coughs> excuse me, the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, Jezreel, what is Jezreel? It's actually a city and sometimes referred to as an area which is in the northern part, or in other words, the, the ten tribes of Israel up in the north. You would have to go up almost to the Sea of Galilee and across that midsection region, which I'll explain in a minute, uh, to Jezreel. Now, a number of things happened in the city of Jezreel. If you have a, uh, you know, I have lousy maps in the back of my Bible. Do you? Uh, you know, so I, when I look at my lousy maps, uh, I found that at least one of them put Jezreel in there. And so you can, you can probably find that, that city and where it was. Now, first of all, uh, you remember the reigns of Ahab and Jezebel, who were, he was the king of the north, the king of Israel. They were wicked people, uh, both of them. And you remember a vineyard by a, that belonged to a man named Naboth? And Naboth had a vineyard. And you know where that vineyard was? That vineyard was in Jezreel. So in 1 Kings 21.1, it says it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And so you remember the story that he wanted that, uh, that vineyard. And he goes home and cries like a baby because Naboth won't give it to him. So, of course, Jezebel steps in and says, leave it to me, honey. I'll get it for you. And uh, pretty soon uh, Naboth was dead, and he got the vineyard of, of uh, Naboth. Well, God at the same time then raised up a king named Jehu. And if you remember, Jehu then was uh, an action type of man, and he was a bloody kind of man. And God uh, said, I'm going to use you, Jehu, to avenge the blood that was shed in Jezreel. And so what happens is this King Jehu ends up both responsible for the death of Ahab and the death of, of uh, Jezebel. And so it goes like this Je in, in 2 Kings 10, 10 11, Jehu sle uh, slew <laughs> all that remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his kinfolks, his priests, until he left them none remaining. God said to Jehu, you go in and just wipe out the whole household of Ahab for all of the wickedness and the blood that he had done. Not only that, that wasn't enough. So uh, in chapter 9 of 2 Kings, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her face and tired her head and looked out at a window. And you remember that he was standing below the window and said, throw her down, and they threw her down. And she landed and killed, and the dogs uh, licked up her blood. Remember that? The end of Jezebel. Who did that? Jehu did. Well, the strange thing that our verse is telling us that also happened is, he said, I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. What we also realize is, that Jehu then uh, became a bloody man himself. He was a murderer himself. 
and he murdered uh, their offspring and everyone else. And so God judges Jehu for being a bloody man, though he used Jehu to judge Ahab and Jezebel. Now, God does that. It's not a strange thing. God will use uh, Assyria to judge Israel. But Assyria is far worse country than, than Israel. A bloody, terrible, wicked uh, uh, country. And so God then will bring judgment on Assyria because of what they did to Israel. And so God uses Babylon to judge Assyria. And so the lesson we learn is God can do what he wants and bring judgment on people he wants, but just because he uses a wicked man or a wicked nation for his own purposes doesn't mean he isn't going to judge that nation or that man as well. And we need to understand that and take heed about it also. So what, what happened? Well, he brings then the Assyrians in to judge. And so notice verse 5. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Here's an interesting thing. Jezreel, in the, when it's referred to as a valley, is a valley that runs east and west across this uh, place just below the Sea of Galilee all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea. It's called the, the Valley of Estralon, but also the Valley of Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo was the place where great battles were often fought. If you were coming from the north, as Assyria is going to have to, Babylon's going to have to, you've got to come into Israel through the Valley uh, of Jezreel. You've got to come that way. Or it's called Megiddo because Megiddo is a city that's also in that valley. I've been there once in my life in, the, in Israel and stood up on uh, you know, where Nazareth is up on the hill and you look down into the valley that spreads east and west across and you think to yourself, this is where the Babylonians came in. This is where the Assyrians came in. And, and they destroyed and they judged Israel. And you know what he's saying in verse 5 that may be true. You see the phrase in that day. When you see that phrase, it can mean a judgment that is close or it can mean a judgment that's way down at the end of the age. Because throughout this book, Hosea is going to tell us about the day when God returns and brings judgment on this world. And you know where he'll, does it? Well, he'll do it? He'll do it in the valley of Megiddo or it's called Armageddon. That's this valley where Armageddon will take place. And yet something happens here too, and that is that, the, that Assyria came down into uh, uh, Israel in 722 through this valley of Jezreel and judged the whole nation. And so kind of a prophecy here, uh, a little bit of history, but that's why you have the name Jezreel. So what do you want to name our little boy? Well, we only have one choice. God says you got to name him Jezreel. Why? That's a terrible place. That's why we have to name him that. So his name carries this prophecy for them. So, verse 6. Secondly, she conceived again and bare a daughter this time. And God said to him, call her name Lo-Ruama. Lo-Ruama. By the way, 
Jezreel, I forgot to tell you, means God scatters. God sows like you'd sow seed. God scatters. But lo ruama means not pitied or no mercy. No mercy? Yeah. For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. So what happened? Of course, 722 happened. And Assyria came down from the north through the valley of Jezreel and took the northern ten tribes captive, and they were gone. They mixed, married with the Assyrians and resettled that land and were called Samaritans. Uh, later in the days of Jesus, the, uh, of course, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other and had nothing, hardly anything to do with one another. And so uh, they were taken captive in 722. It's only 150 years or so later that Judah also, the same thing will happen. Well, notice also verse 7. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. So I'm going to take the northern tribes captive because of, of their bloodshed, and because of their idolatry, their harlotry, but I'm going to, at the same time, I'm going to have mercy on the house of Judah. They're, they're better, they're not really great, and God will have to take them into captivity, but not at this time. Uh, so he says, we'll save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor sword, or battle, by horses, or horsemen. Now, this prophecy is being given in the 700s, uh, you know, before Assyria comes down in. Here's what we know happened, and it's in 2 Kings chapter 19. When the Assyrians come down, they're led by a king, Sennacherib, and he brings his army in through that valley of Jezreel. They take the ten northern uh, uh, kingdoms away, and then he comes down to Jerusalem at the same time. He's figuring, I'm going to make a clean sweep of it. I'm going to come down and I'm going to take them captive. So he lays siege to the city of Jerusalem, and he's waiting outside, as they would do, until you're almost starved to death and the rest. And you know what happened? Well, I'll read you part of it. 2 Kings 19.35. It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord, who is usually Jesus of the Old Testament, in his pre-incarnate state. The angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. Now that's a big army. And you got them camped outside your city walls. It's pretty scary. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were corpses, all of them dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and remained in Nineveh. Well, what did, what did verse 7 say? I will save them not by bow, nor sword, nor battle, but, or, or even by horses and horsemen. How did God rescue Judah? By the angel of the Lord. By a miraculous means, he saved them. So here's a, a prophecy, both of the destruction by Assyria of the northern tribes, and God, at least at this time, his deliverance of the tribes in the south. No mercy, low Rama. Thirdly, we're going to have another child, and this time a son. Now, when she had weaned, low Rama, she conceived and bore a son. 
I'm in verse uh, 8 and 9. And God called his name Lo-Am-I, which means, by the way, not my people. You probably have little notes there in your Bible. Not my people. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Just a short statement here. That's a pretty serious statement. Now, let me say again that God had made a covenant with Israel called the Abrahamic Covenant way back in about 2000 B.C. That covenant never can be broken, never has been broken. And so God, to this day, we still say Israel is God's people because of that Abrahamic covenant. But God also made a conditional covenant with them, the Mosaic covenant, which they broke often. And it's kind of interesting in this history, though he will not break that covenant with them, yet as they break the Mosaic Covenant, he brings punishment on them. I, wrote, I had down here Romans 11.1, 1, for example. I say, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And so Israel is still Israel and still God's people. But we find some interesting history here, and this is where Gomer comes in as an unfaithful wife. Gomer goes out now, and we'll see in the, in the chapters after, with, after this, and is unfaithful to Hosea. She goes out and, and has other lovers. And so Gomer is very patient, or I mean Hosea, very patient with her. And though he would have a right to divorce her for this, he does not and eventually brings her back. But we find that God did bring judgment on his own people, and God uh, did bring divorce on Israelites for their spiritual adultery. Kind of an interesting thing. And we find it in Jeremiah 3, 6 through 8 which says, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, Return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Kind of a unique history, isn't it? Now, all, you know, the oversight of this is, you might, might say, I guess, that that Hosea will bring Gomer back, even though she's been unfaithful. There's no reason why in a marriage, for example, that one person is unfaithful, that that sin can't be repented of, and then that other partner bring that person back, right? As a matter of fact, that's what God would have done in a, in a uh, marriage like that until another marriage takes place. And then, of course, it's, it's impossible after that. But until that, uh, there could be reconciliation. Well, Israel committed spiritual adultery, but never married another. I mean, that, that's the overall picture of God's history with Israel. And so what we find is that God will bring her back. 
he will bring Israel back from all of her harlotries and all of her adulteries that she's committed against him throughout all the years. In the end, God restores her and brings her back. That's an overall picture of Hosea and why this, one of the reasons why this book uh, is important. So he will call it a new covenant. Uh, as a matter of fact, look at chapter 2 and verse 16. We'll see these great verses next time. It shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband. No longer call me my master, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant with them, and so forth. Uh, so he's going to bring her back. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with Israel. Now, Back to chapter 1 and verses 10 and 11 as we end up this chapter. What happens then here is that as we're going to see, and this, this is one of the, the great things about the, the, the book of Hosea, is at the end of these chapters, uh, God gives these words about the future restoration of Israel. So in that picture, when God brings his unfaithful nation back to himself, he is going to restore her and it's going to be called the kingdom of God. When Jesus returns to this earth and dwells on this earth for a thousand years, Israel is his married wife. Israel is his people. And God has you know, hundreds of prophecies about when that comes. Well, verses 10 and 11 is one of those prophecies. So I have, for example, my study Bible, the application of future restoration. Here's a future restoration. Yet the number of her children, Israel, shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. God said that to Abraham. Eventually I will make your seed like the stars in the sky, like the sand of the seashore. That's how many descendants and how many children you will have. Now, there are five words here. I don't think they're on your outline. If you want to see them in these two verses, there are five things that happen here. The first one is called increase. We could say national increase. So what will happen eventually when God brings Israel back? Children like the sand of the sea. Can you, num can you number the sand in the sea? <laughs> can you number the stars in the sky? That's how, that's how when Israel is blessed, when the Lord returns to this earth and sets up his kingdom, Israel will be like that. And so there's a national increase. Secondly, there's a national conversion. So the second half of verse 10 says, And it shall come to pass, in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there it shall, uh, shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. Remember in the New Covenant, for example, God says, I'm going to take away your stony heart and I'm going to give you a fleshly heart. Or he will say, then the Spirit of God will be poured out on you and you'll be converted. And so when the Lord returns to this earth, uh, Israel will either be saved or lost. Those who are lost will be cast out. But many of them will be saved, and they will turn back to the Messiah. And then in the kingdom of God, they will multiply like the, the sand of the seashore. So there's going to be a, a conversion when the Lord comes back. Not my people, yet now the sons of the living God. Thirdly, there's a national reunion in verse 11, the first half of verse 11. Then 
the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And so no longer two kingdoms, no longer uh, south and north or Judah and Israel, rather just Israel, just the people of God. So there's this union that brings them back together. Not, and by the way, what did Jezreel mean? The name Jezreel means scattered, to be sown. And now you're going to be regathered, the opposite of the name Jezreel. Fourthly, there's a national leadership in verse 11. Then, uh, at the second half of verse 11, and appoint for themselves one head, one head, and they shall come up out of the land uh, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And so what is, what is uh, the leadership? It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The one head is that finally Jesus Christ will be the king over Israel. David will be there sitting on David's throne. The resurrected apostles will be there sitting on 12 tribes. The, uh, the Old Testament saints will be brought back into the kingdom of God. But Jesus himself will be reigning in Jerusalem for a thousand years. You can't have the kingdom of God without Jesus, without the king. And when the king comes, then you have the kingdom of God. So one head finally over both of them and brought together for great is the day of Jezreel. Now, you might see, if you have a topical Bible too, that chapter 2, verse 1 is really the end of chapter 1. Some people, you know, we, we didn't have verse divisions and chapter divisions in the, in the text of the Old Testament. And so that may be. And so the last thing that is said, the, the fifth thing that is said, is that there will be a national restoration, chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Rather than, not, rather than no mercy, mercy will be shown. So all of these names of these children who meant, that mean scattered and judgment and no mercy, finally the Lord will return and there will be one people and there will be mercy and they won't be scattered and, and, and all of that will happen. And so uh, mercy will be shown them. And how will God do it? By putting an end to the Antichrist and his armies in the valley of Jezreel at Armageddon. And then he will make these things true in the kingdom of God. So a short chapter here, but uh, interesting historically, but interesting prophetically also as to what God is going to do. Let me just make four quick points. Number one, Israel is still God's people. And Genesis 12, 1 through 3 has never been rescinded. I will bless him that blesses you or bless them that bless you and I will curse him that curses you it's never been rescinded that is why our Christian forefathers in this country said we're supporting Israel we're supporting uh, what God said to support and that's important lest the judgment of God comes on any nation secondly God will curse those who curse her so I just said that thirdly God will restore Israel one day as a matter of fact, he'll restore the whole world. And we know that. As, as bad as we see the world getting, we know what's going to happen to it in the end. We've read the last chapter. We know how the book ends. And it will end like this. And then fourthly, I would say to people individually, you're never so far gone that God can't restore you. If you're a sinner without the Lord Jesus Christ, 
you're not so bad that God can't save you. As a matter of fact, you're a perfect candidate for it. God will save you from your sin. And to the children of God, God will never forsake you. He may bring chastisement on you. He may uh, take blessing away from you, but he will never uh, desert you. You will always be his child. And never forget that because you will need it at various times in your life. All right. Stand with me, if you will, as we've kind of had an interesting time in chapter one. Let's pray and we'll sing a song at the end of our service. Now, Father, thank you for uh, these wonderful prophetic books, even this one that has so many interesting historical things in it. But Father, we thank you that uh, we've tried to see tonight the overall purpose that you have in things like this, and especially your overall purpose for your people Israel and their restoration and conversion and the day when you reign over them. We look forward to that because we know we'll be there too. So, Father, encourage our hearts by these things. Encourage our hearts by your love and faithfulness toward us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that through our Hosea. And, Father, may we then walk faithfully to you as would be pleasing to you. So bless us now as we sing this song. Speak to our hearts in the way that we need. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken's going to come and lead us.